What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Welcome to Conspiranormal. This is Adam and of course Surfiel's standing by. How's it going, buddy? It's going okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. We got some very interesting people on the line with us today. Yeah, we've got Carl uh, Abrahamson and we've got uh, Vanessa Sinclair on the line, and they're joining us all the way from Stockholm, Sweden. That's right. So, Hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. Hello. That's, yeah, nice Hello. to meet you guys. We're, uh, we're I think we're about like uh, six, seven hours different, something like that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right I think now, seven. So. So it's like early afternoon for us, and it's like late at night for you guys, or a little bit later at night for you guys. Mm-hmm. But um, Carl did a movie about Anton LaVey, a documentary. And this is a subject we kind of wanted to cover for a long time. And Carl and Vanessa, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so, Carl, we'll start with you. Uh, I want to talk, and Sergio will jump in um, with questions as well, but what made you want to make this documentary? What uh, what kind of, like, made you want to kind of explore this? I know that you knew Anton LaVey, so maybe we can kind of start there with kind of, like, your relationship with him, how you sure. met him and all that. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's been a long journey since the very first time, and and that sort of it makes sense that I did this now. And but if we jump jump back to the very beginning, it was uh, mid nineteen eighties. I was uh, a young 
curious person interested in uh, you know occultism and weird pop culture and good music and good movies and all those things that one is interested in when when one has that um, you know age and of course sooner or later when you are interested in these things, you run into LaVey and his satanic Bible, and, and I did. Uh, and it was so, um, you know, liberating in a way because I really liked the book uh, compared to a lot of other occult stuff that was more, considerably more complicated and highbrow and you just mm-hmm. filled with symbols, whereas LaVey had that, you know, he was what I call a punch packer. He, he packed the punch. It's not um, because it was simplistic, uh, rather on the contrary, kind of complex ideas and concepts, but the way he formulated it, it really appealed to me. And I also liked the symbol, the symbol of Satan as some kind of, not as a you know anthropomorphic thing, but as a symbol of resistance, as a symbol of a friend of humanity who, who wants, you know, you know, uh, supports people to be uh, ingenious and creative and go against the grain, all these things that appeal to a teenager. And and basically, um, then I had a band, because that's also something you do. And that band, the first record we made was a song called Sweet Jane, and it was my own romanticizing about LaVey's relationship with the movie star Jane Mansfield, because oh. I was, like, o- obsessed with... with um, you know that kind of lore, where where occultism mm-hmm. and pop culture, or B movies and great music, all of these things merge. And this was like a real scenario. This really happened, even though for me at that time it was like larger than life. And then I had a friend uh, who um, had met Lavey, uh, an English musician and artist uh, called Genesis Peorage, and he said, "Why don't you send that record to him? I'm sure he would like that." And I did, and I knew for a fact that he didn't like, you know, rock and roll and that kind of stuff. And this was kind right. of noisy, noisy rock and roll record, but I did, and and um, lo and behold, I did get a letter back from him uh, expressing his gratitude for, you know, keeping the faith and the memory of Jane and stuff like that. And and then this was in 19. The record came out in 87, then I got the letter after having sent it in 1988. And then in 1989, I went on my first ever American trip, and that's when I met LaVey and we became friends. And then uh, almost every year after that, uh, up until the mid-1990s, I... uh, I went to see him in San Francisco. We hung out and just like uh, did uh, normal things that friends do in the sense that we were both, you know, movie buffs. So we watched a lot of movies, listened to him play his, his weird music. And it was just uh, great to hang out there. Very inspiring for me. And then what happened was that, you know, time passes and, and he died in 1997 and I had translated and published the Satanic Bible into Swedish in 1996. So I was happy about that, that he could see that at least. And and then, you know, time passes on, life, etc., etc. Then um, about, oh, when was that, four Four years ago, I started working on a book called California Infernal, containing old photographs by a paparazzo called Walter Fisher. And it was all these these photographs of LaVey with Jane Mansfield, but also LaVey alone with Forrie Ackerman. It was just amazing photographs. And it dawned on me that maybe this is like fodder for, for a film, because I'm, I'm a filmmaker. And uh, I had this burning question in my mind, you know. I felt like I had been, you know, knocked on the head 
whenever I came out of the black house early in the morning. And I mean that in a good way. I, I was like knocked over by impressions and inspiration and, and um, just wonderful impressions. And I was curious about the people that I met back then, but also other people that I knew were there at about the same time, whether they felt the same thing that, you know, LaVey had in a way, I wouldn't say programmed us, but, you know, uh, given us so much inspiration and thematic possibilities that we uh, you know we took them on and made them real and manifest in our lives and that filled us with joy i certainly you know uh, took many impressions from from those uh, experiences and they have been very valuable to me in my creative life and then i started you know networking again and talking to people and one thing led to another so i just you know i went with uh, with vanessa and we we met these people old friends and new friends and started shooting material and and that turned into the film into the devil's den Mm-hmm. And you really take, uh, you really point out that this was about your experience and other people's experiences. You really didn't want to make a biopic about LeVay. Um, you didn't, you, you said, I think a few times that you, you almost had the, uh, you almost thought about it, but you thought you'd keep it more personal. Yeah, absolutely. And that it's, it's, uh, was a decision, uh, you know, a multi, multi-layered or multifaceted decision. First of all, uh, I, the question was mine. The, the in, sort of the instigating question was mine. The premise mm-hmm. of the film is, uh, I experienced this. What did other people experience? So for the step to a biopic from that is very, very, very long. And then also in terms of aesthetics, I like to watch documentaries that have, you know, the personal touch. I'm not interested in like generic documentaries that are basically like they use a TV formula. You know, if you have if you have someone saying something, then you have to counteract with someone with an opposing, you know, opinion stuff like that to have some kind of objective journalistic balance. That's great for TV and news and stuff like that. But I want emotion in documentaries Mm -hmm. and specifically in my own. I want personal approaches. I want um, uh, emotion and I want it to be heartfelt. And and in that sense, uh, it wasn't really a hard decision for me to leave this kind of ambitious biopic thing. Just focus on the premise. And the premise is what I experienced there, what filled me with joy and inspiration. Was that also the, the case with other people? And as it turned out, it was. And LeVay's influence on culture, and, and you really point out magic, too, really can't be, can't be uh, underestimated. And this, that same impact that he had on you, he had the same impact on a lot of other very influential people in culture and things I think still reverberate to this day. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that will just keep on. Uh, it will keep on uh, doing that through the fact that his books are still out there, and there are new books uh, being written. and And it's just that um, the sad thing is, of course, that you know there's con- there's there's no more. You know, since he's dead, mm-hmm. you know he can't he can't uh, formulate himself um, onwards. But I mean, the stuff that's already there is, I think, it's brilliant, and I see myself as some kind of uh, magical anthropologist in a way. I, I've studied a lot of things um, in theory and also in, in practice and, and checked out different things, different traditions and stuff like that. And what made him so valuable in the big picture and what will continue to be valuable is the fact that he left this arcane um, 
system, the Western ceremonial traditional, you know, magic stuff with the certain kind of ceremonies and rituals. And he sort of wove in uh, the demonic, but he also wove in from stuff from movies and his music. And it was just a completely new ball game in the way that he used magical memes in a way to mm-hmm. as ingredients in his own concoction. And then he offered the concoction saying exactly what it was no you know essentially no hocus pocus in the sense that no obfuscating uh, magical terminologies that people you know were 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 confused by but rather a pragmatic approach saying try to do this and see what what it does for you but make sure to keep the language your own weave in your own magical memes based on what really makes you resonate and that's another aspect that that I like it's, it's it's very much about emotion it's not so cerebral as uh, mm-hmm. much of the other magical um uh, I don't know, systems, so much of the other magical systems on the market, so to speak. Because the more system you have, of course, the longer it'll take for you to get to the core. And to the core of what? Well, to the core of yourself, of course. And for LaVey, it was more um, like a holding up um, a mirror to people saying that this is a dark mirror. Uh, this is created by people who like sort of dark music and, and powerful stuff and emotional stuff. Take a look at yourself in it. If you find a resonance, that's beautiful. But if you don't, you know, just mm, shuffle on and move on to something else. There was no real, uh, there wasn't any sense of trying to pull people in and, you know, milk mm-hmm. them or, or, or obfuscate their own real desire which is always for people to to find out more about themselves you know and and aesthetics and culture is a great way of a great gateway of doing that it's easier for people to relate to something that they already know and feel a resonance with than uh, you know escapistically uh, confine themselves in a uh, in a symbology that may not have any meaning for them eventually well, I want to ask you, Carl, about LaVey and his kind of like his life as a showman being kind of like a carny mm-hmm. and how that really kind of influenced him and what he later did and kind of what some of the ideas that he picked up doing that kind of job would uh, filtrate down into what he would later call the Church of Satan. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it basically has to do with you know getting to know the human psyche. Uh, Lavey was very interested in psychology. I mean, later on in his life, he was you know well versed in in psychology, and it says, he says in the film that you know he's a Freudian, and and um, that's great, you know. But I think what what when he was young and he, he traveled with circus and sideshow, uh, it was that's basically a world of uh, make believe in a way. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's very real. You know, uh, people who are well, you know, soothsayers or read people's uh, f- future in the in the cards or whatever technique they use. It's basically a, a cold reading saying that this person seems a bit distraught. He or she needs to hear this to be you know, a bit pepped. And everybody knows it's a game. Uh, no one goes to a sideshow, uh, you know, um, and and thinks that it will change their life for a substantial better. It's it's a uh, it's games and it's fun and it's um, 
there's enchantment and arousal, and it's really uh, a kind of an escapistic bubble in the lives of ordinary Americans, or at least it used to be. Uh, so I think what LaVey got to see there was both the, the best sides of the human psyche, but also the worst side, and a great deal of hypocrisy, like he mentions that um, many of the people who went to the girly shows in the morning after were at the... Uh, right congregation congregation for some right. you know, church that traveled with the sideshow so it's all about show business in a way uh, and i think that uh, what he took away from that was basically a deep and uh, realistic knowledge of uh, how the human mind works and how the human psyche works and that i think he took on uh, not you know specifically cynically to create something that could you know milk people but just knowing that some people may say that humans are noble or they'd have, you know, uh, Christian potential or whatever. He had seen the worst of people and knew how hypocritical people usually are. So for him, mm -hmm. it was no problem uh, stripping that in his own system of, of uh, Laveyan Satanism. You know, he just wanted people who were resonating and who could feel empowered by hearing the truth. And the truth in this case was just bas basically self-perfection. You know, to be honest when you're self-reflecting. Vanessa, I wanted to get you in here about this, being a psycho psychoanalyst, and kind of like get your insights on what Carl just said about LeVay and how was LeVay kind of right about about those those ideas? Yeah, I mean, I've actually told Carl, I think at some point we need to write a paper about psychoanalysis and Satanism, because I yeah. see a lot of parallels in that, you know, it's it's about that there's like no like right or wrong path for everyone, that everyone's an individual and has their kind of individual trajectories, and that there's so many different things that influence each individual, um, that you can't just like boil everyone down to these categories that, that have historically, um, people have tried to put each other in. You know, it's like, a, I think they both, both of them, um, yeah, celebrate the individual and like in psychoanalysis and a psychoanalytic treatment, the difference between psychoanalysis and like regular psychology is that, you know, if you see like kind of a regular therapist, you know, sometimes people will give you advice on like what you can do to feel better and give you some like stress management techniques and like different ways of thinking. But a lot of times it's kind of prescriptive in that way where the, the therapist has some answers and can help the patient, right? But a psychoanalyst doesn't take that position. In fact, like if you're asking the analyst to kind of tell you what to do, the analyst will refuse because instead mm -hmm. the point is for, for someone to actually not step in and tell you what to do and give you advice for once in your life and to help you right. figure out what you actually want. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like LeVay really emphasized self-discovery. You know, he talked about, you know, the, the things that are really important to you when you're cycle, uh, social and sexual development, the things that are really important to you as a child, the things that you gravitate towards, like hold those things really close and they can become your, your magical tools. Even though people see uh, like the, the general aesthetics that was based on, you know, his preferences, he didn't necessarily want everyone to have to be tied to that. You know, you can still be, uh, you can still resonate with Satanism and wear bright colors or, or be into the cultural things that impacted you. Exactly. Exactly. And it's harnessing those things that do like make you an individual really resonate with yourself. That's going to be what's powerful for you. 
Carl, I've always been told that um, LeVay basically was an atheist, but he used Satan as a kind of what we would now call like a trigger word. And so can you kind of talk about that, how he kind of used just the word Satan, how that kind of was to get people to make people literally feel uncomfortable and then to get them out of their comfort zone as some kind of like, if they could get past that, then they could really get into the philosophy. Yeah, I think that that's the key to it. And that's usually what's called a, like a, you know, a bullshit detector. So it's not so much about, you know, uh, keeping people uh, out and off because those people, who, you know, who might seem to have a semblance of, of in intelligence or possibly a possible attraction, they might not if they are terrified by the symbol itself. And then there are, you know, degrees of that. And, and some people, of course, realize immediately that this, this is brilliant. You know, he's using this simple word that is actually still quite a powerful symbol, uh, specifically in Christian cultures, I'd say. And, and uh, by doing that, sort of uh, discard those who, by their own fear in a way, will never come to uh, terms with that in themselves. However, the people who have no, who have no problem accepting it, they can start discussing uh, in between themselves, you know, terms and concepts and philosophical things and magical things. Uh, and it's like, uh, what do you call it, de-dramatized. It's no longer uh, a drama by existing in this environment. And I think it's very important what you said also is that, you know, um, he certainly didn't want you know people to you know look like him or act like him. It was all about, in from a psychological perspective, becoming individuated and mm -hmm. use, using symbols for you know reaction, but also for proaction. Uh, is a powerful thing. Um, using you know religious uh, icons and symbols that might not at all have been there in your own religious upbringing, whatever that is, but simply looking at the world pragmatically and seeing what made you tick early on in life and, and then just roll with that, develop that. Uh, everybody knows, for instance, how important like the first sexual experiences are in life and how they tend to uh, format you in a way and it sticks with you. And that's what LaVey called, you know, erotic crystallization uh, and that it's very it's a very powerful moment because the forces involved there are very very powerful and I think we, we are also drifting now into something that is interesting um, in the sense that people say that he was uh, like a strict uh, materialist uh, that may be the case I, I can't speak for him but I think earlier on in the history of the Church of Satan there was certainly um, kind of an uh, open-mindedness about uh, the concept of magic. And magic, of course, it's very hard to define what it is. I mean, you could look at it as a cultural cluster uh, or a cluster in different cultures about how to relate to the supernatural, etc., etc. But but if you mean, if you talk about magic as a... Um, uh, tool or a, a system of tools that has the uh, potential to be useful uh, for you in your own individuation process, whether it's elaborate rituals or whether it's just like, uh, you know, thinking about these things. Uh, it's still uh, something that we relegate to the sphere of the supernatural and hence to the 
in a way uh, non materialistic, and that's when it becomes a bit dodgy. I do think definitely Lave sort of believed, and that's believe in quotation marks. Believed he believed in magic for sure, but he also made a distinction between lesser magic, which is you know day to day manipulations of the material world in a way and higher magic which is more of a psychological nature and that's also one way of describing these things is to use a psychological language uh, our so called sciences have not really reached that point yet where they mm. validate these concepts uh, but he certainly did and and he uh, just preferred to call it like lesser magic it's it's the right. simple stuff and higher you know greater magic is is um, something else that we cannot explain, and that doesn't mean you know that it's materialistic. It doesn't mean that his approach approach was non-materialistic. So I, I can't really speak for him, but my sense, even when I met him, which was towards the end of his life, was that he he certainly believed in magic. But then again, what is it? Is it just something right. natural rather than supernatural, or is it just like psychological hocus pocus? Uh, I really don't know. Well, and then for people who would discount LeVay, I mean, you, you do a really good job in your, uh, in your culture book. You have a chapter, mm -hmm. uh, chapter nine, Anton LeVay, Magical Innovator, yeah. where you also talk about how much he, he influenced magic itself and how these techniques that he really introduced into magic made it, made a, he integrated emotion and things that made it a lot more powerful to a lot of people. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I'm very happy about that uh, that uh, text. And I would say that writing that text was also something that made me think a lot about the concepts that eventually turned up in the, into turned into the film. Also, and it's just very basic stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just like you know validating core human processes. Whereas the the history of magic, uh, say for instance during the 20th century, was one of uh, syncretism in the beginning, weaving in elements from from the East and Asian, you know, philosophy and and uh, schools and then it just you know moves on and on and we have Crowley there and we have Austin Spare there and then uh, a strong influx still from the Golden Dawn which is basically Western ceremonial magic with a huge Kabbalistic influx and then came the 60s with the you know the age of Aquarius and all the Eastern stuff uh, um, but still they were all systems. They were all systems based on the individual uh, getting into uh, a structure or a group or a collective thing. So even if you have a philosophy that claims to be you know, liberating for the individual, it still comes at a high price, which is that you have to sort of succumb or, or subordinate yourself into a system. And that I think, right. if an anything, what the 60s brought was something that was really healthy against that kind of collectivistic thinking. And LaVey was part of that too, uh, albeit in, in uh, darker colors in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and what he brought to the table was simply this thing, you know, um, don't listen to anyone. Don't listen to anything except for what makes you tick, what makes you happy, what makes you, you know, feel resonant with the, the stimulus in question. So I think that uh, it's easy to say that, but he actually walked the talk. You know, he came up with these concepts and told people, this is how I perform magic. Uh, and then people could take it or leave it. So you, there was a sense of honesty there too. And and um, I think it was healthy. I mean, it was great for, for me to have experienced it and great for other people too. 
he was just a great, you know, larger-than-life character. But at the same time, if we stick with the perspective of looking at the history of magic, he was really uh, a game-changer, uh, more so than than I think people have given given him credit for. But I intend, I intend to keep changing that so that more people realize it, because magic today is like an explosive game board filled with mm-hmm. potential. And, and if you're stuck you know, in the Kabbalah or, or ceremonial magic, you're, you're going to lose out. <laughs> you're you're going to miss yeah. the big picture and all the fun. Well, and so much of that stuff was so culturally specific. And, and LeVay really looks like he created a system that is uh, very, uh, very modern where people can use the material around them and their, their modern day cultures and even pop culture and things to, to do magic. So... Well, I'd yeah. like to step back a little bit and just talk about um, how both of you all are, are very interested in magic and the occult, its role in society and history. Uh, you both research and explore these themes in different ways. Uh, Vanessa is a psychoanalyst. And for both of you also, um, artistic expression and creation seems to be at the center of your own personal relation to magic. And I, I want to kind of talk about that dynamic and how how you all have these rich intellectual lives and rich artistic and magical lives. And it, it seems like it, it, there's not a big separation between the two and that they have communication with each other. Yeah. I mean, they definitely all go, all go together. Um, I think that the, the best art is magical <laughs> and uh, um, it's charged in some way. And, you know, every time I'm doing a working I mean, most of my art is is the working leftovers from a working that I've done, basically. So when I'm doing like cut-ups and collages, um, they're either infused with some intention or um, me just exploring. But there's always kind of a magical mindset um, when they're being created. And you're very influenced by the cut-up method in particular, right? Yes, um, I, I do cut-ups uh, almost every day uh, for years now, and yeah, I kind of, I have, uh, when I lived in New York, I, had, I was friends and roommates with a woman named Caitlin Foisy, who's uh, also a witch and artist, and um, we kind of had a Third Mind project going on um, while we lived together there, um, very much in the vein of uh, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen and we had both been doing cut-ups and witchcraft on our own uh, separately and had been friends for a while and then one day we were we used to go to cemeteries together as you do and um, one day we were going to uh, Harry Houdini's cemetery together which was like our favorite spot to you know hang out basically and uh, we realized you know we're not just talking about cut-ups and like uh, talking about Burroughs and Geisy more, but now we're starting to understand what this kind of third mind that they were talking about is really about. And it was after like working together for a while, um, we didn't do it intentionally, but we started seeing how how what they talk about, where like when two artists or magicians come together and work together for a period, then there becomes this kind of third mind that's not either of you, but made up of both of you. And it kind mm-hmm. of takes on a life of its own. And, um, yeah, and it's still, even though we live in different continents now, um, Caitlin is always in my thoughts, and I, I constantly am finding myself doing work that seems relevant to 
to our projects still, even when I don't mean to be. So it, it seems to still have a life of its own, and it's been really fascinating. And of course, as Carl mentioned earlier, Genesis Purge and Jen's wife, Lady Jade, Briar uh, Purge, um, you know, they had a third mind project as well that they turned into their Pendrogeny project. So we're very much in that same sort of lineage from Burroughs and Geisen to Jen and Jay. And then, Carl, do you want to talk about the role of magic in, in your music creation? Yeah, sure. I mean, for it's it's uh, I have the same uh, kind of approach, uh, meaning that uh, I can't really separate myself from what I do creatively. Uh, yeah. That that may be quite common for for uh, for many artists, and I think that's a good thing. But I also cannot separate myself from uh, looking at, or not even looking at, but but but. Uh, regarding uh, the art as magic meaning that everything i cannot simply you know disseminate something that is just a, a, an expression there needs to be something uh, inherently uh, i wouldn't say strategic it, it could be an expression in the sense that something i need to get out of my system for instance that's not necessarily going somewhere in space and time but it's just like a, a cleansing or a um, something hygienic in a way, but everything I do in terms of uh, writing or music or or that in combo as some kind of spoken word musical piece, um, or the films also, uh, it's it's imbued with uh, intent. I, I don't think I could ever do something. It would feel kind of pointless for me to just be you know all round creative in the sense like doodling on a piece of paper or, or making a drawing or a nice watercolor of. Uh, uh, the forest or something I don't know right, but it right. just it's just the way I've I've uh, in a way programmed myself over the decades to be in a way efficient but also to to find my own methodology to find my own language and I think what I've been doing recently in terms of music and this combination with uh, spoken word stuff uh, sort of sums that up in a way there is the written aspect there is the oral aspect in the sense that I'm reading it so it's kind of like a spell but the mm -hmm. spell is also woven into the creative process of music that is created to create you know to uh, achieve uh, or generate an emotional response in the person who's hopefully listening to it and, and they don't need to listen to it like with uh, full attention um, it is after all some kind of ambient music but I do strongly believe in what used to be called uh, the butterfly effect meaning that whatever I say now it will resound um, in theory forever and then with music and stuff if people listen to it in other places and it's amplified and you know sent out into their spaces and it's just an interesting um, it creates for an interesting magical resonance basically of, of uh, infinite potential you know the the mm -hmm. more widespread it becomes and the more people get involved with listening to and reading reading our stuff and and uh, watching the films and stuff like that it's it's like a platform of engagement and communication that's very very interesting oh, i was just going to say and then we and then we've had these couple of conferences together and hopefully we'll have more since you mentioned the intellectual kind of aspect of it as well yeah yeah, where we brought together like psychoanalysts, artists, and occultists and magicians, you know, all in the same room, and those have been really amazing too because um, it was kind of a dream come true for me because these are all like the different kind of 
uh, fields that I study and work in and read, and then to have like kind of all my favorite magical practitioners and psychoanalysts and artists in the same room <laughs> talking to each other uh, was, has been really amazing. And I made sure like when, when we actually I developed the panels, like instead of grouping them by topic, because then you'd have like all the analysts on one and like all the shamans on another. Um, I actually like made the panels by cutups. I put everybody's like name in a hat and then pulled them out randomly to see like who would end up together. And nice. it put together people that I would never have imagined uh, talking. And I was like, great, let's do that. So it really led to like great conversations. And then now they've uh, things, new books and art. And so and then we get to enjoy that. So, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that about that conference because I watched that interview last night when you guys were like a month out from doing it. So how did that go to have these people from kind of different disciplines? Did they find some similarities with each other? Just like how, like were, were people really, and the way that you did that, how did the conversations kind of flow? What did people, were there any conclusions? What did you guys get out of that? I mean, they, they, everybody definitely got along, and I think, um, I mean, I think, of course, like, the analysts are probably the most closed-minded, because they're not <laughs> used to talking to artists and, like, shamanic practitioners, um, but they were all open-minded enough analysts to come to the conference, you know, <laughs> so right, we right. already, like, had a good group, you know, um, yeah, and, like, at one point, I remember one analyst coming up and being like, because, you know, we had people talking about just, like, really different, um, like, kind of worldviews that are not the, the, you know, Western academic worldview. And they were like, we've never, you know, they'd never even heard of any of this before. So they were kind of like, we don't know what to make of it. And we feel really, like, nervous but excited, but we think that's good, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's good, too. Um, but they ended up, like, definitely finding common ground, and that's why I wanted to bring them together because I feel like everybody's kind of working. I mean, everyone's working with consciousness and, you know, the mind and life and creativity, and I felt like they all had a lot more in common than they realized. Mm -hmm. um, and I especially wanted to break into academia and kind of break down those walls a little bit um, because it's definitely you know it's so taboo it's like mm -hmm. you talk about magic or shamanism in academia it's like oh you study that you know so you kind of like automatically written off which of course my point to them is like you know it's re that's really racist at the end of the day um yeah and you can't do that you know you can't do that anymore you have to stop so and i think that's starting to change so, finally yeah. And psychoanalysis is so disparaged by the, uh, by the psychiatric and psychological establishment, you know, right. more that, that, yeah, it, it can't do the, it can't replicate the same prejudices. Exactly. Exactly. And also, you know, Freud was interested in the cult when he was starting yeah. out and, you know, he made a conscious choice in the beginning to kind of move away from that because he was trying to make his science, his new science legitimate but he's still like, there's still letters that he wrote where he was still doing like telepathy experiments and stuff like way into like the end of the 1920s. So he did it like, you know, way into his like 70s. So, you know, he was always interested in it. He just, he just was trying to like make his way in a re, I mean, we think the medical mm -hmm. establishment is hard headed now. Imagine it was what it was like in, you know, 1895. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. um, you know. 
case he made to be kind of taken seriously, but uh, I'm wanting to like bridge those divides again because I think they're really unnecessary and, and just keeping all the fields back. Absolutely. I listened to your lecture, uh, The Crusade Against Magical Thinking. And I really yeah. like that. I really like how you're you're stressing that like psychoanalysis should uh, help by acknowledging magical thinking to combat those in the psychological psychiatric establishment who are trying to always trying to pathologize it, and how the prejudice against magical thinking in the West you said it it belittles people's um, uh, belief and trust in their in their own ability and experiences. And I just I think that's really good work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, I think it's really true because, you know, when, when I was training as a psychologist, you know, you're taught, you know, if somebody talks to their dead grandmother, you know, they, you know, that they're on a road to psychosis. And it's like, once I had a pr private practice for, for long enough, um, it's like literally every single person that comes into my office office at one point is like oh I know this sounds crazy but and they talk about like some synchronicity like oh I was on the train and then this thing happened and this number means this to me or like or they do have an ancestor that they feel close to that is dead you know like literally every single person that, that has ever talked to me has something like that that they've brought up at some point and they're everyone's so afraid to talk about it because they're afraid that they're going to be pathologized but it's like if literally something like this happens to nearly everyone I've ever met, then probably it's mm -hmm. pretty common, you know? <laughs> Maybe we should stop pathologizing uh, these things. And then there's this great analyst in, out of England named Darian Leader, who is also a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book called What is Madness? And that's what he talks about. He's like, you know, the Western medicine and psychiatry in particular has pathologized just having different belief systems and depending on who the medical doctors and psychiatrists decide uh, is a valid belief system or that society thinks is valid depends on who's pathologized and like just because I mean someone could have a totally different point of view or like he talks about one of his patients that like believed he was from some other planet and it's like so what you know <laughs> like why does it matter some people believe in Jesus you know they're not put in into padded rooms so, like, why is somebody that believes he's from another planet put in one? It, it, you know, if mm -hmm. he can function fine, he's feeling happy, he can go to work or have friends or whatever. Like, what's the problem? If he, The only time that somebody should need help is if they feel like there's a problem and they want help. But if they're fine, then, like, why should we be bothering them? Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. Uh, Carl, I want to turn to, uh, you, you refer to yourself as kind of like a magical anthropologist. And I've mm -hmm. been reading your, I've been reading your book, A Culture, and um, you really stress how uh, in analyzing these different movements in the occult or, or magic, how these, these movements have seeds of later cultural developments. And so like you go through, you, you talk about the uh, Lebensreform in Germany uh, mm -hmm. that really like foretold so much of what, what we think of like the hippies, the new age nowadays. Uh, you talk about LeVay, of course, and then Temple of Psychic Youth. And can you kind of explain that idea of, of a culture and how uh, the rest of the larger dominant culture has been so influenced by things that first happened in the occult? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it, it's um, if you look at, I think uh, you know that book focuses a lot on the 20th century because undoubtedly it was a very, very dramatic uh, century that we were basically in the aftermath of it, um, and 
again, this what I mentioned earlier on, this this syncretism where there was like uh, things melting into each other and merging into each other and then taking on new forms and, and you know, some became uh, extinct more, more or less immediately and other caught on and, you know, uh, seeped into the mainstream and became something very, very substantial and that in itself was like subdivided usually after power tripping conflicts into smaller groups again but they kept some fun kind of flame going it seems that uh, when there is no major uh, draconian force, like for instance um, uh, a monotheistic clutch on the public arena, um, uh, people become very creative. And that's not saying people can't be creative under stress and duress and restraint, because they can. But when you have an all-around freedom uh, and you have traumatic experiences like the world wars and pandemics and the atomic bomb and things like that, that awakens things um, in in uh, people's uh, psyche and also in the collective psyche uh, that, you know, whoa, this is beyond, uh, you know, human-on-human uh, -human aggression. This is something that has, carries a very, very negative potential for me, even though it's other people deciding uh, what's going to happen. So I think uh, a lot of what we saw during the 20th century is basically a kind of elaborate and chaotic survival instinct uh, taking the form of some people waking up, being imbued with a message saying, hey, people, listen up, this is very, very wrong, this is crazy. Most of them, just like, you know, in the saying, if the nail sticks up too uh, high, it will be hammered down. Uh, but many nails are uh, resilient and they will just keep standing and suddenly there are two nails and three nails and then it becomes something else. And what happened in the esoteric um, environment, say for instance at the turn of the previous century, was that there was this kind of um, disdain against the strictly you know, materialistic worldview brought on by the 19th century imperialism and industrialism and all these things. Uh, so of course people, the pendulum swings into the other way and you have seances and spiritism and, and occultism in general. And what happened during the 20th century was that it seems that the pendulum is swinging so fast that no one really sees it anymore because you have very extreme uh, movements on both sides and we you know would you just uh, see where that ends up but people no longer use a language of let's call it uh, religion or pseudo religion they can use other things to reach out to people meaning they use culture so if some interesting little people uh, in a group or just uh, singular people are creative and they can get their creative work out there to inspire people because that's how it all begins it's by inspiration mm -hmm. then an idea could catch on whether for instance it's disseminated in a mainstream movie or in a successful novel that affects people people a lot more than political uh, decisions. You know, politics should really be about administering uh, reality, but how reality is created in the human psyche is by uh, signals and input that is basically uh, non-rational. So it's emotional, it's concepts, and when many people find that 
whoa, you like this book too? You like this film too? You like this writer too? You know, that can really create change. And that's really what happened in the sense that many of the Lebensreform, uh, original Lebensreform people uh, from Germany actually uh, emigrated to the US and ended up in California and Arizona and became this old generation, uh, proto-generation of hippies that the young hippies looked up to. So that's a very concrete strain. Uh, of not just how an idea uh, travels by uh, default or, or by proxy, but through real human interaction. But then, of course, when uh, thousands of people get turned on, in this case by you know Leary and, and Kesey and his people, um, then you it was kind of like an explosion of a philosophical attitude that was dropped straight down into the individual's psyche. And that's interesting as, as a phenomenon, but it, it's more interesting what happened later on when sort of the multicolored veil was uh, uh, taken away by a rude awakening of the Vietnam War and harsher climates and stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, in many people, these ideas of individual liberty and free love and, you know, tolerance, the kind of a holistic approach towards the earth and eating better and, you know, respecting animals, it, it turned into movements where people actually got together and worked with it. And that became like civil rights. It became equality for women and, you know, um, environmental awareness, all these things, uh, and basically stemming from very individual uh, seed of people uh, willing to take the risk to stand outside of a collective uh, and also to express what they found, sharing the information. Um, and it may sound sort of banal, but that's really how things change. It's how, things, it's how human processes and major creative movements actually work and how things change in the big picture. And it's only when you have a collective movement that's when the real problems begin because human beings are inherently power tripping. It's something, you know, biologically ingrained in us. So even when you have a movement that carries something objectively good, meaning something altruistic, meaning something good for the environment or the awareness of, of things, uh, it will eventually end up sour simply because there are people involved and, mm -hmm. and power is a very corrupting phenomenon. But then again, as I said, then things split up and they go into different strains and, and uh, some are purists to the left and other are purists to the right and some are purists in the center, you know, but most of them still carry some of the original seed and it would just take on different forms, mutate. Ideas are like DNA in a way. You know, it just uh, they 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 will live on in different forms. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about because I've definitely have noticed myself in many ways because I've since I've done this show, getting a lot of people that are interested in occultism. What what do you think is behind the like the latest flowering of it? Uh, well, if you're asking me, I, I have a very uh, concrete answer there. I think as 
with what, what began already in the early 20th century or late 19th century, it's about survival. Uh, we are living in extremely chaotic times and people are very, very afraid of uh, making decisions on their own. So they look to, you know, uh, secure environments, stable things. But at the same time, they also associate these traditional stable things with corruption, with um, uh, transgression, with negative things. So people are trying to be open-minded simply in order to survive, to find new avenues, to find new ways of not only thinking and feeling, you know, fulfilled by the theory and inspiration, but actually ways of moving ahead, you know, mm -hmm. alone, but also together. And even in the big picture, I mean, we're, we're looking at that right now because we're in the, this pandemic thing. You know, I think it would be a very problematic situation if each country had you know, isolated itself even in terms of communication. That would create a very difficult situation. Uh, but now people have to communicate, they have to uh, be transparent and honest. And this is, you know, I've never experienced anything so concrete. This is about survival. Mm -hmm. And if you don't harness this, this, you know, the virus or pandemic, it will mutate, it will come back in a more vicious form because it's also you know, struggling for survival, just as we are. And we have been very complacent uh, in the sense that, you know, we're living, um, we're well off and, you know, we're living complacent, nice lives and, and can watch our big screen TVs and stuff like that. But uh, in general, we're, we're geared at uh, surviving. And that's what's being awakened right now. It's just a cry for, um, for help. Uh, directed towards ourselves and to our closest people. But we are not isolated in that sense, especially now with the internet. Um, we can just, you know, talk about these things and say that uh, let's try what these old shamanic people in the Amazon or in Australia or whatever, uh, how, how are they relating to uh, the planet and to survival? Because our strategies that we have in the West, they don't seem to be working out so, you know, so well. So I think it's time to, to uh, you know, uh, open up um, and let some perhaps, you know, esoteric or, or, or magical influx in, but to validate what's worked all along. You know, and our, our way of dealing with problems is basically a couple of hundred years old, I'd say. It comes with industrialization and imperialism, mm -hmm. and it's, it's materialism cloaked in a monotheistic garb. And it's a horrible thing. It's, it's extremely destructive. And it cannot go on forever because then we will all be the victims. So that's the reason why I think people are so interested in occultism, in esoteric things, in alternatives, basically. Vanessa, do you have a psychoanalytical uh, view of that? Of yeah, the current I mean, I, occult revival? I yeah, I think I, I think it gives I agree with Carl and I also think it um it returns people's agency back to them. You know, like mm -hmm. we were saying before with the crusade against magical thinking. It's like people have experiences and they're taught by society that they, their internal experiences are wrong or crazy and that they should listen to what this outside authority tells them is the correct way to be or think uh, or interact with the world. And I think that we're seeing a, a revival of kind of occult thinking and different shamanic practices, um, magical practices, because it returns people's agency to them. It, and it also, you know, at the very least, I always think about ancestor working with your ancestors because 
everybody has ancestors. <laughs> everybody right. has people that came before them. And I think we need to return to, you know, instead of pathologizing people who are connected with their ancestors, return to like working with your ancestors and your lineage because there's always power in that. And also into working with the land that you're on, you know, especially mm -hmm. in the United States, it's, it's so people are so disconnected from the land um, because the people that originally inhabited, inhabited the land were just massacred and put on these little reservations and you know they're so totally pushed to the side and th there's no respect for the land there's no respect for the earth and I think it is a survival strategy for the for the earth and nature and for ourselves which, which we are part of the earth and nature um, and we need to stop we need to stop <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, the um, and another um, we talked about Levee earlier, but another one of the biggest iconoclasts of the of the late twentieth century, and someone you both had uh, were acquainted and friends with was Genesis Peoridge, of course, who just passed recently. And I understand your latest project, Carl, was a, a collection of collaborations with Genesis over what a, a few decades or. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you're referring to the book called uh, Sacred Intent, uh, yeah. which came out just in time for Jen to receive his copies, and then then he passed. And it was sort of we knew that it would, the end was near, so to speak. So we really worked on the book a lot and made sure it came out in in time for for Jen to experience that. It's basically a book uh, that gathers uh, some sub conversations that we had beginning in 1986 and up until 2019. So it's it's a pretty long uh, long haul uh, of course we um uh, talked about a lot of interesting things also outside of this sort of concept of having an interview but we mm -hmm. decided i think uh, in uh, two in the year 2000 to let's you know let's make this right let's make actual interviews for a, a book in the future uh, because otherwise it's just you know, like two people talking about interesting things but you know what good is that for other people if you can't share it in a way so uh, I'm very happy we did that and I wish we had done more in a way because I'm very happy with how the book is and it's getting really good response in the sense that people associate Genesis with with music like radical music throbbing gristle yeah. and psychic TV and stuff like that and that's all fair and fine and also Janice an artist but for me Jen was first and foremost a magician, mm -hmm. and and uh, sometimes the discussions are more about art and you know these things project. Uh, but what I'm happy with that sort of seeps through is this uh, sacred intent. Jen talked about sacred intent, meaning as we touched upon that before too, is like everything needs to have some kind of seed to be moved on into the future, into the uh, possibility of reaching uh, fertile soil in some someone else's mind, um, and. It's it's a uh, it's a project that is uh, hard to even look at and not be uh, emotional about it because uh, in the last chapter, for instance, uh, Jen asked me, you know, what do you think it will be like a world without Jen in it? And then I just said that you know it'll be fine, you know, it'll just deal with things and and uh, we'll carry on the torch, <laughs> whatever, you know. Right. But that's a that's a rational way of looking at it. But now, of course, after the fact, it becomes much more of an emotional thing, and I for now feel that. Um, 
with the music that we made together and uh, this book and other projects is just to to um, you know not only carry on the the intellectual legacy but also the magical legacy how we first met was under the umbrella of the temple of psychic youth and there's so much there that's still uh, un- not processed yet by me. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to carry on with that for sure and make sure that's uh, um, moved forward in a sense uh, so that the magical legacy is also uh, kept alive just as the intellectual or the artistic is uh, through this book. Well, the Temple of Psychic Youth seems to be one of these like occult breeding grounds that really influenced our our present day, uh, you know, along with, I could see LaVey's influence too, but the Temple Psychic Youth, can you kind of talk about how, um, how much influence you, you see that you all created back then and what your, your part in it was? Yeah, I think that the, it sort of uh, it was designed because Jen was very smart and you know saw the big picture immediately, uh, having sort of uh, analyzed and and discarded, for instance, the music industry and its cynicism. But he knew that uh, culture was the way to go. So the Temple of Psychic Youth sort of aimed straight for the juggler in terms of you know affecting things on the outside. It was also a process of you know magical training and and getting to know yourself and all these sort of personal things but in terms of having agency in the outside world uh, again you know uh, culture was there from from the start and was encouraged to be involved in publishing and music making and filmmaking and all these things and of course the language that that brought essentially at that time uh, using influence from the cut-ups and bars and guys in that Vanessa also uh, talked about um, using whatever technology was available and applying this cut-up approach that was very influential I remembered very much you know at that time there was uh, satellite TV you know there was no cable yeah. satellite TV and you know you had MTV and uh, this huge demand for music videos basically promotional clips and they became very very freaky in the mid uh, mid 1980s and then at that time psychic TV um, had been doing a lot of experimental videos. I could see strains that emanated from Psychic TV for sure, because many of the filmmakers that were involved went on to make music videos, for instance. Um, and uh, that's not only an aesthetic uh, thing, but also a thematic thing, weaving yeah. in magical things, occult things, and you know the work of Derek Jarman, who's a good example also of someone who was really strong at the time, and he was you know um, uh, not an active part of Topi, but he was certainly favorable, and he appears in some of the Psychic TV films, for instance, and made some films for them. Uh, so, I think that from that blast that happened for 10 years, uh, the first era of, of uh, Temple of Psychic Youth, it left a legacy in writing, in the publications, in music, and but mainly through the people who are still uh, making things today, carry on the thing, not in the same language, but do doing really good, good uh, work that mm-hmm. still affects people. Well, and they really took that, seems like you all really took that punk DIY ethos a step further into magic. And yeah. There's, there's kind of a continuity between that. And that's what's very interesting about, about Toby. Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's not a, um, something that is, uh, you have to... 
like justify the DIY thing in the sense that you have to work on on a really small budget because what happens when you grow up and you become more and more you know in a way affluent or have more means or or access to things plus yeah. the fact that technology has changed uh, in a, like in a miraculous yeah. way yeah. so suddenly we're all you know we're all sitting with these tools that are amazing we can yeah, do can. amazing things like basically make a low budget film that really looks pretty good you know it works and, you can and do so, so it, much more for so oh, much less yeah. Absolutely, yeah. because back then it was really cut and paste. It was, you know, scissors and glue. Yeah. So, so and, and, you know, four-track Porta studio recorders and stuff. But now we can do much more, and we are doing much more. Uh, many people are using the original inspiration and the uh, thematics and just uh, moving it on in, in very, very advanced forms, I'd say. I think, too, that um, – what Toby showed, and also this ties to LeVay too, is like that magic could be in anything that you do, like anything that's personal and powerful for you. So like like I learned from Jen that sigils uh, can be in songs, you know, like I always thought of sigils as like taking a part of sentence and making an abstract design and charging the sigil, which Toby, of course, did as well but you know then when I met Jen like then I'd be doing something somewhere and then a certain song of Jen's would pop on and I'd see the synchronicity with it and I'd be like oh and you know I learned that like you, you, there's power in your words not just when you abstract them into sigil form visually um, but also you know when you put them into songs and put them out in the world and that's you know I, I when I was doing my cut-ups I don't know, five or six years ago, um, I started reading them aloud, like Carl said earlier, like little spells. And then I started recording myself reading my cut-ups, my cut-up spells. And then I would put them on like an iTunes playlist and like shuffle the recordings of myself reading my, my cut-ups and then make more cut-ups while I was doing that. And when I met Carl, I started sending him my, my cut-up poem readings, and then he started sending them to music. Um, and now we have albums, and they kind of go out into the world that way. So I think, like, whether you're interested in music or poetry or art or whatever you're interested in film, um, you know, you can make whatever you're already interested in work for you and be part of your magical practice. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, that's a that's a really really good point. I wanted to turn a little bit back to Levey, if you don't mind. Um, I just wanted to hit a couple of things. Kind of like uh, you talk about in the film, Carl, or you rather, some of the people that you interview talk about this book that he was criticized for. I guess it was called The Witch's Workshop, and that he was kind of criticized for not being, I guess, feminist enough. But it was probably for a lot of people the most feminist work that they'd ever read. So we can kind of talk about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was uh, originally called the Complete Witch, and then it was mm -hmm. reissued as the Satanic Witch. Um, and he had that was based on uh, you know him summarizing in writing uh, thoughts and ideas that, of course, were. Uh, conducive to his own pleasure, meaning they were like uh, things that he liked to think about in terms of aesthetics and how women should be, etc., etc. But it was gotcha. also based on on the thing that you mentioned, like the witches' uh, workshop, which was um, he had these uh, group meetings uh, even before uh, the Church of Satan was. Um, inaugurated in 1966 there was the magic circle and there was the witches workshop basically kind of informal gatherings where he uh, talked about magic and showed what he knew to people who were interested so the witches workshop was revealing in the sense that 
this was at a time when feminism was uh, catching on and basically as an um, uh, reactive movement, as an antithetical movement towards, you know, old school patriarchal uh, Americanism in a way. Uh, but he didn't like the fact that it also affected the distinctions between the sexes from an aesthetic point of view. He was very much an aesthete. And his imprint, his erotic crystallization came, of course, from the... Uh, I would say early 40s and onwards because he was born in 1930. So the movie stars of that time and people he saw in in uh, sideshows and places where he like they they were like uh, slightly um, uh, chubby. There was an uh, actress called I uh, Iris Adrian that was his favorite, and so they were really feminine. And at that time, men were really masculine. So of course he brought that along because that was his crystallization. So it might not have been. Uh, you know, uh, certainly not politically correct even then. But when women were trying to liberate themselves by like burning their bras, mid to late 60s and early 70s, Lave came with this tome saying, uh, "Use a sexier bra instead," because what he wanted was to empower women to be, you know, powerful to be able to seduce men or to get their way. It was not about becoming subservient to some kind of patriarchal mm -hmm. archetype. It was becoming as much woman as possibly possible in order to reap the harvest uh, of, of uh, what the witch uh, in question wants. You know, So he was just trying with one language to empower women. And that is amplified by some voices in the uh, in the film, who uh, who realized this also, but of course at the time, of course he got slack, um, be, be uh, because uh, or flack or whatever it's called. But at the time, it was so uh, anathema in a way to say that you know women should be women, but the the reason why he did it was very very uh, pro-feminist in a way. He wanted women not to be part of a collective movement. He wanted individual women to be powerful, and this is something that I think. Uh, most girls go through in their teens, of course, a highly confusing uh, period of time. Uh, but, you know, women learn early on what kind of charms they have and what, you know, the ball game is. And many of them just succumb to uh, tradition and traditional roles, etc., etc. Uh, or they get swayed away into the antith antithesis. Uh, but hopefully they will use what they have for a good uh, magical purpose just as men should do the same thing and if if uh, there's mm -hmm. strength in in an attraction that's just all much for the for the better uh, and i think that lavey's mm -hmm. book was very like many of his books they were uh, concocted and conceptualized very very intelligently because of course that book got a lot of attention it was like perfectly released uh, and i think the um, satanic witches that use it today um use it not with uh, like a nostalgic um, with nostalgic goggles saying that they have to look like movie stars from the 40s on the contrary I think it empowers them to to uh, look at themselves in the mirror and say what do I get off on what is my power what is my look basically meaning becoming more aware of who you are and how to mm -hmm. impose agency in the outside world well, and there's a lot of really interesting magical concepts in there that if you look beyond the archetypes that he's presenting in some of the formulas, you could apply to a lot of different things, too. Of course. I haven't, 
I haven't read it in quite some time, but there's a there's a lot you could take away from that, uh, if, even if you were not a satanic witch. Oh, absolutely, and that that's the beauty of his stuff. He's just filled with ideas, and you know, and many of the ideas, you know, when I return to his books, it's like, whoa, I never seen this before. It's like it's uh, it's just so packed with with uh, potential seed that uh, you have to return from time and time again. It's it's very very rich material. Well, he, something he I had, want to say real quick was the uh, the magic circle. I remember seeing the list of the uh, of the the topics he was he was presenting, and it, it looked to me like it would have been the equivalent of a paranormal podcast, you know, <laughs> exactly. back then <laughs> in his living room. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally. And I think with, with and I mean, it's a good we, point. For, for for us, it's great, you know, to have these podcasts, especially during these pandemic times, and the fact that you are in in America and we're here in Sweden. But I mean, it was also pretty cool to be in that house, and and I, I uh, uh, was privileged that I could be in that room in that ritual chamber where they actually had those meetings. And I could just you know imagine being a fly on the wall and those uh, things where people from all walks of life came in there, and he talked about you know. Um, the vampires or werewolves or you know cannibalism or medieval occultism it just must have been amazing there was one thing that stood out to me and just to point out too that he had like a lot of women i guess quote-unquote followers and and friends that were his secretaries or pretty much his right hand he had no problem Mm -hmm. with them basically doing what he needed them to do and are them being happy to do what what out of their own free will so mm-hmm. he depended he depended a lot on women oh very much so and i don't know too much about sort of his his upbringing and childhood and stuff like that but i think that that uh, he he was a ladies man for sure and, and oh, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he he uh, he uh uh, preferred it because he was very, very sort of like an alpha male guy, and sometimes uh, you know they don't work so well together with other alpha guys, you know. Whereas <laughs> with with women, it's a different ball game. And, and kind of going back to culture and what he was influenced by, something that really struck me uh, with some of the footage that I guess was towards the end of his life that you put in the film, where he talked about you mentioned that he hated rock and roll. And right. that, you know, that's the normal, you know, the old satanic panic thing about the heavy metal and, and, uh, all this kind of stuff back in the eighties. But he said like, well, you better hope that, you know, the real satanic music is Liszt and Beethoven yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Debussy and yeah. all these, all these guys. So he was very much like, anyone that was like an independent artist, essentially someone that really was an iconoclast he said that was satanic music yeah absolutely and i think it goes to show also that the the wide spectrum of possible future inspiration that he can bring because as uh, when people think of it as you know yeah it's you know heavy metal or it's black metal or it's uh, death metal or it's any you know uh, it's dark and it's dangerous and stuff like that but basically you know he lived again he came from another generation and and he was so well versed in music it was eerie you know he 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 could play tunes just straight from the off the top of his head uh, uh on request and also his knowledge of classical music for instance was was uh, astounding and then you know um i had to 
teach myself to get into classical music. I mean, it's you can say that, yeah, Mozart is nice, but when you really get into it, you realize that, whoa, in a piece of music by, for instance, these people, Liszt, Debussy, you know, Beethoven, Wagner, of course, you know, you, you have such a range, wide range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's allowed a longer span. It could be a short piece, 15 minutes, or an entire opera of, it goes on for hours. But still, there's some kind of... Um, emotional focus in it that simply doesn't exist in rock and roll of of any kind it's just like a blast of you know aggression or frustration or desire which t- ties in with the the fact that it is essentially teenage music you know <laughs> you know right. it's it's the teenager expressing um, what's good or what's bad whereas right. in classical music and a more the more constructed pieces of for instance contemporary classical or experimental music you have so much more going on and this kind of wealth of human emotion lavey was a um, well, spokesman is not the correct word, but he was very much a living example of what could be uh, made possible by integrating that kind of emotional understanding. Mm. I'm very interested in what the relationship of Genesis and LaVey was like, uh, because they would seem to a lot of people to be so diametrically opposed. You know, I know LaVey's gotten uh, pigeonholed as being really, you know, authoritarian. Of course, he's said a lot of things to make people think that. And then Genesis is, you know, seen as this like really libertine, libertarian type. How did how did their relationship work? Because that's something I haven't really haven't really heard. Yeah, th- th- on the surface, I think you, m- many people see it as the you did, but uh, there is. Um, uh, I don't want to sound too, you know, Harry Potterish in a way, mm-hmm. but there, I would say that for people in the magical community that are visible, like are iconic, there is a kind of. Uh, I wouldn't say solidarity, but there is a, a respect and a diplomatic approach. And Jen had met uh, Lave uh, early on, uh, earlier than me in the in the 1980s, and that was kind of fresh then. So it was mid 80s, uh, and. Uh, Lave was actually very interested in what Topi were doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I talked to him about that too, uh, in the sense that it's a magical network, it's focusing strongly on the networking, just as the Church of Satan had done. And they got along well. Jen, of course, was a super, super individual, yet having an altruistic streak uh, that later on turned into uh, many other things. But they were, uh, I would say, they were more than acquaintances, maybe not best buddies, but that had more to do with geographical, generational differences, uh, not a basic difference in in attitude, not at all. And and, um, uh, Jan provided me with uh, a recording uh, of um, him and LaVey uh, actually talking together, and it's highly interesting stuff, and I'm going to use it for for, um, an upcoming book project. So they had... uh, uh, a relationship that also moved into the 90s. I remember Jen uh, uh, telling me that they met sort of in the mid-90s when LaVey was more ailing, but they still, you know, went to an all-night diner and had hamburgers and stuff like that with Jen and uh, Lady J and Blanche. So it was there. And I think uh, what I call, I would call the the real solidarity of real magicians in the sense you you can always find uh, common ground, you can always find things to talk about, because 
the archetype that you carry forward and the wisdom you're carrying forward is too precious to be uh, wasted on any kind of conflict at all. And if there is any kind of conflict in between people who claim to be, you know, magicians and other other magicians, they're usually not worth their salt. Yeah, I was going to say, it's especially because they're both magicians that were interested in empowering individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have magicians that are not... Uh, so nice to each other if they're both like in competing factions where they want to be on top you know what I mean they have their different kind of hierarchical groups that they're running but both of these groups the Church of Satan and Hopi were all about being a collective of individuals Um, and that was what's really important so they you know they had a similar vision in that way well and they both uh, stressed uh, sexual freedom so much too Mm -hmm. um which is which is really interesting and definitely put them together and and uh, in into the devil's den you you make it a point to really show how much Levey was a pioneer in stressing sexual freedom uh, in identity and people doing what they want to do and uh, that's that's something that people don't understand as much about Levey. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely, and it's very, very important. If I could just sort of uh, touch upon this, in the sense that uh, what we're seeing now in, with the, you know identity politics and many of these things, it's again people who they seek affinity in a collective instead of really finding out who they are, and a kind of a, a confusion of identities is normal and necessary when you're young, but for it to grow into a movement that's sort of transgenerational, it can become a problematic era because. A problematic uh, thing because uh, what happens if you realize that, well, now I know myself better, I am not what I thought I was, I am actually this, and then you're inside in a safe collective uh, selling itself based on an antithetical position towards something else. So I think that, again, it's all about individualism. That was Lave was preaching. He wasn't preaching free love, he was preaching, you know, uh, true. Uh, honest, transparent approach for yourself. That's not exactly the same thing, you know. To to be what do you call it, licentious, or and and uh, um, uh, you know, being active in 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 too many fields simply because that's what the culture dictates or the group dictates. That's not the same as being true to yourself. Yeah, I read I reread the Satanic Bible last year for its fiftieth anniversary. Um, and, yeah, because I hadn't realized that when I read it the first time, I don't know, 20 years ago, 20-something years ago, um, that he does mention, you know, very explicitly many times, like, people should be very free in their sexuality, no matter what form that sexuality should take, and, you know, homosexuality, transsexuality, and he even mentions asexuality, um, you know, and this is in 1969, uh, and I taught I taught a class at the new school on gender, sexuality, and perversion, and this is all like you know current age stuff. <laughs> and this, you know, then he wrote this fifty years ago, so he was really forward thinking, ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Very much so, yeah. Vanessa, I wanted to ask you uh, before we end here about uh, your book, Rendering Unconscious, that you. I guess that um, it's uh, it's kind of like a, a compendium. Yeah, when I was in New York, I had a um, kind of a psychoanalytic group because um, even though psychoanalysis is such a kind of obscure field uh, in the field of mental health, it's kind of 
but there's not a lot of us, I guess. Uh, we're still all very divided up into our little camps of like, you know, I like Freud or I like Lacan or I like Jung or I like Klein and, you know, the different theorists. And like everybody sort of stays in their camps with like the theorists that they love the most. And the, the different theories don't speak to each other a lot, even within this like kind of really small field. And I found that really frustrating because I happen to read a lot of different analysts and uh, like um, what lots of different analysts say. And we had this, we had formed this group that was kind of an eclectic group of psychoanalysts that were coming from all sorts of different theoretical orientations. Um, and I guess when I left New York, I must miss them. And so I decided to make a book kind of of everybody. And like what, you know, our group, we would bring people in from Europe and South America and stuff to speak as well. Um, so I basically invited everyone from this sort of psychoanalytic group in New York and then all the other analysts I knew from different kind of events and conferences, uh, mostly in New York, um, to kind of contribute to this book. And yeah, so there's like 50 people in it. <laughs> And uh, it's great. And then I also, I also included a, a bunch of poetry as well, because um, before I left New York, I was doing these poetry events. And actually, the first that's where the name Rendering Unconscious came from. It was a poetry event that I did at the Delancey and the Lower East Side. And then I decided that would probably be a good name for the book. And then when I was waiting for the book to come out after I'd finished editing it, um, I was kind of antsy for something to do. And so I decided to start interviewing people that were in the book um, and made this podcast. And so that's kind of how the podcast started. And now, of course, it's grown and branched out. And now I'm just interviewing all the analysts I can find, basically, especially now that we're in uh, quarantine because uh, everybody's home. So now everyone suddenly has time to talk on the podcast. So yeah. I'm doing like <laughs> one every few weeks. It's like, I think I did four this week. <laughs> trying to slow down yeah. a little bit yeah um, we're, we're, we're actually interviews we're actually doing another show tonight <laughs> yeah exactly that's great <laughs> well then you also founded a, a association of psychoanalysts right called uh, das unbehagen yeah that's when it, that's the group uh, that's what we're called das unbehagen so freud wrote a book called das unbehagen in their culture which is uh translated as civilization and its discontents and he basically talks about how like people are dissatisfied are going to be dissatisfied constantly because we live in civilization so we're always having to kind of repress our needs and desires in order to live with each other um so everyone's like having being a little depressed is is just that's just the normal state of being in a society because uh that's there's just no other way around it you're going to be a little anxious and depressed because you can't really do what you want because we all have to be here together um and then that's better than like you know living in the woods or whatever in the wild <laughs> um we decided that uh, we were sort of discontent with the civilization of uh psychoanalysis and so we made our own sort of little society not to go too much into it because I definitely want to do a full interview about this, but some of the stuff in the book isn't necessarily a psychoanalysis on an individual. It's a psychoanalysis on groups and kind of like group think. So you're looking at different, you're, you're, you're also delving into the world of politics as I understand it. Yeah, it's a really eclectic. Um, I kind of, cause I, I get really tired with academia and like writing for journals. I actually decided not to write for journals anymore 
because I just am so tired of like having to justify everything I want to say and like over edit myself and having other people over edit me. Mm-hmm. And so I basically told everyone like you, it doesn't have to be an active academic formal paper. Just like write what you actually think and what you have to say, <laughs> and I'll let you publish it the way you want. You know, instead of <laughs> you having to fit into some little format. Um, so basically, let everyone write about what they want. And some people, uh, we were putting it together. I think we got the idea for it in 2017, like in January. So some people wanted to write about politics and the election. And um, somebody wrote about like riots that were happening and uprisings. And um, some people wanted to write about films. Somebody wrote about like Black Swan, uh, Darren Aronofsky. So it's really eclectic um, in that way where people, people were welcome to write about whatever was kind of on their mind. Cool. Well, something I wanted to uh, ask you both, uh, probably our last question, would be, we, we talked about the role of magic and creative process, but is there a magical element to your, to researching and writing and the more, the more intellectual stuff? Do you have intuition and synchronicity that, that leads you to answers? Do you find anything like that in your, in your research processes? Yeah, I would say for sure, and I would say that's probably one of the reasons why I find this kind of over-editing so frustrating, because I'm really tired of, like, I, it, make, it it saddens me to watch these, like, really intelligent people have to, like, think so much about, like, who's going to argue, what, what arguments people are going to bring up against them, and have so much of their work be a defense, you know, of, like, well, you might say this, but here, here, I've already addressed this argument, this argument. People have to take up so much of their time and energy defending what they have to say before they even start saying what they actually have to say. And it might be the psychoanalyst in me, or the musician in me, or the artist in me, I don't know, maybe all three. <laughs> but I really feel like, especially like saying psychoanalysis, I'll pick one, um, people learn about themselves through the act of speaking about themselves. And so much of my job is like helping people to stop censoring themselves because they're const- they're so inundated with like the way they're supposed to be from their parents and society and their families and what people expect of them and their job that they're constantly like, uh, oh, maybe I didn't really mean that or maybe that wasn't the right word or maybe this is that. And they're constantly like censoring themselves and editing themselves. And I, it's just so sad to me. And it's like, it's okay to say something and then be like, you know, say it differently next time you say it if you decided you you wouldn't run the phrase it that way this time, but you shouldn't have to keep editing and sensing yourself like in real time all the time. You should just kind of learn as you go and people should accept more that like people might contradict themselves. Theorists might contradict themselves. They might write something later that doesn't go with what they wrote 10 years earlier. Why? Because it's been 10 years. <laughs> you should change what you think and say. Um, so I really want to just have more of a platform for that. And I feel like um, definitely in my, my own research, following the kind of synchronicities and clues, you know, like I would in magical thinking, really helps mm-hmm. me kind of get to things faster and in a better way than if I was constantly second guessing myself or doing what reading what I thought people would say I'm supposed to be reading and citing. Yeah, and I, I can only I can yeah. only sort of 
second that emotion or that point of view. So for for me, there's no uh, higher magic than the actual process of writing. I mean, the 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 lore of magic and you know the hocus pocus and the romanticism of it, and it's just beautiful and absolutely usable in a creative process. Um, but for me, just uh, to start writing and then realizing that I'm sort of opening a tap. You know, and it's not a tap to some, uh, you know, outer universe of forces or whatever. It's basically into my own psyche, you know, and my psyche, uh, the deepest strata, it, that's occult, you know, it's hidden. But when I'm writing that process, regardless if I'm writing like factual, uh, rational stuff or fiction or poetry, whatever it is, it's the same kind of joy that's basically being in touch with uh, whether it's a lower or a higher stratum doesn't matter. It's just a different level of your own consciousness. And it's a beautiful thing that people have been striving for reaching and touching uh, since the dawn of time uh, in different ways. And I think that to integrate that state of mind is absolutely necessary for um, individual survival, for collective survival, uh, and uh, it should be encouraged. And the best way to encourage that is by being creative and inspiring other people that's how i look at it wow thanks a lot guys this was a this was a great discussion really loved having you guys on yes very much really so. fun um, thank you thank you uh, well vanessa we'll start with you where can people find your podcast where can they find your book sure we have so many sites um the podcast is at renderingunconscious.org um, my, my main website is drvanessasinclair.net, drvanessasinclair.net, and that has links to the podcast and to art, my arts through the Tripart website, which is Carl's Publishing Company. Um, we have a Patreon where, like, every Monday we talk about our magical practice, um, and all of, all of the podcasts, all of our music, everything, all of our writing comes out there first. Um, and we're currently writing a book together, our first book that we're writing together. We're doing every ch a chapter every two weeks um, and kind of taking turns writing chapters in this sort of exquisite corpse style where Carl mm -hmm. wrote the first chapter, I wrote the second, and he wrote the third. Um, the third comes out this this Friday. So that's been fun, and that's on the Patreon too. Those are the main places, I'd say. What What is the book about? Uh, the Rendering Unconscious uh, oh, the fiction book? Well, it's it's a mystery. You have to see. <laughs> it's, it's, literally, it's literally when a Carl, mystery to us, too. <laughs> yeah, because when Carl started it, he wrote the first chapter, and we did it in true exquisite corpse style, where I didn't look at his chapter when I wrote my chapter. Um, so my chapter is totally different than his chapter, and now he just wrote the third chapter. I haven't read it yet because he just finished it today. Um, but I'm actually integrating cut-ups now of, like, the first two chapters in the next one I'm writing so that things start kind of looping around in the text. So, I don't know. It's a fun process that we've never done before. So, it's, kind of, course, of a, it's kind of a magical working in, of a, in and of itself. Yes. Like everything we do. Uh, yeah, and then the book, the Rendering Unconscious book is at Trapar, and I also have a book of cut-up poetry called Switching Mirrors is at Trapar, and then we have music at High Brow Low Life. 
Yeah, and no, there's, there's simply so much. And I think the best thing for people is to, to uh, drvanessasinclair.net and my, my main site is carlabrahamson.com. But the, the best hub is definitely our, our Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash vanessa23carl, vanessa23carl, uh, because that has everything, basically. It's, it's the, our preferred way of interacting on, on uh, social media. And where Excellent. can people see Into the Devil's Den? Well, that would be uh, on my uh, Vimeo On Demand uh, page. You go to vimeo.com uh, and then search and go for the uh, On Demand thing and then just search for Carl Abrahamson or the title of the film, which is Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Den. Right. Highly recommended. Excellent. Yes. yes, same. I recommend it as well. All right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, stay on the line for us, and we are going to close out the show, and we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. That was a really good interview with uh, Vanessa Sinclair and Caller Abrahamson. I was uh, pretty impressed by that. Um, Serfio, this is somebody that you, would, you'd wanted to get on for a long time. Yeah, I've been following his work for a long time. And like you said, he's like a, a magical anthropologist. And his um, his being so close to uh, LeVay and Genesis really gives an insider view, you know, into the yeah. late 20th century occult world and its influence on the larger culture and, and pop culture too. So it's been really want to talk to him for a long time. It was, it was great to finally meet him. Yeah. And I'm glad that we added, we got to Vanessa in there as well. And we kind of Absolutely. got her, her take on things. Like they're very much like a kind of a, a power couple, man. Absolutely. You know? Like they just like, like that's like relationship goals right there, brother <laughs> <laughs> is what that is. So, yeah, but they do their, they got the trap art is there uh their yeah, company carl's uh, publishing it's, company i believe it's carl's but yeah but she but she also publishes on there too so so yeah it's uh it's pretty interesting that they work together so well and so we kind of got to like, her perspective on all this and talked to him so that man that uh, that was a really good interview. I think I really want to try to get more into the weeds with both of them on some stuff. Yeah, and so. that idea of uh, of being a, a researcher and an artist, or being a psychoanalyst and an artist, you know, and a magician at the same time, that's really cool to me. And uh, I guess we have some friends like that too. I'd say like Timothy Renner is like that. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, and I think it it makes for um, you know, I think being more uh intellectual makes for a better artist and then being an artist probably makes for being a better intellectual too a researcher well you know renner talks a lot about temple psychic youth he knows a lot about genesis peorage and all that i had heard of throbbing gristle but i had never really heard of all that and, and genesis peorage but i never knew any of the details about it till you started telling me about about him or there's what was what was the Pandergene project? What was that? Um, the Pandergene project was basically a. You have this idea that came from um, 
like Burroughs and Brian Geisen's collaborations called The Third Mind. I think uh, Vanessa touched on that. Uh, that idea of, um, you know, that in your interaction with another person, you're kind of, you, your interaction is creating this third thing, you know, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, being on some kind of level. But the Pander Giant project was with Genesis and his wife, Lady Jane, where they would actually become the same person together through plastic surgery and changing their changing their gender identities. Interesting. And so she, you know, she did things to augment her, he did things to augment himself and it's a uh you know, their project was to like actually create that third mind in a physical manifestation of some kind of alchemical working. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So uh guys we want to thank you for listening to the show. Um, the usual spiel I will give out um, Patreon. We are doing a Patreon every week, and it looks like it's working. People are really responding to that. Cool. Uh, people are joining up. And remember, guys, at the one dollar level, if you can, that's what you get everything. If you can leave a little more, that would really help us out. Uh, we are going to be making some some changes as far as like servers pretty soon that may, that's probably early going to happen by the time this show is out. So, um, there's some, some Just great Google. things. Yes. There's some great things happening. So guys, we want to thank you for your support, but it really does help us. And it really does help us continue to do the show and, uh, YouTube subscriptions. We just passed a thousand, which cool. is really great. Uh, we want to thank everybody that has done that taking the time to click that subscribe button on YouTube and iTunes reviews are always great. We read a really positive one on the show. Just keep more of those coming. Um, we know that things are growing, things are happening and uh, we want to thank you guys for listening to the show. All right, guys, we will be back next time with more. What would you even describe what we do anymore? I don't even know. Paranormal weirdness. I don't even know. <laughs> It's gotten really complicated lately. So, guys, uh, I want to thank you for listening, and we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. 
Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.